look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, my co-host here, Dave Popwich. How you doing, buddy? I'm great, Faisal. How about you? I'm doing well. Good. We've got a topic very near and dear to your heart. Pear is a shape. So is a watermelon. <laughs> I, unfortunately, am the shape of both of them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've determined that you're in shape. It's just maybe not the shape that we want. My kids say I'm a well-rounded individual. Yes, you are well-rounded. I can't, yeah. and I can't argue on my side either. Anyways, <laughs> listen, we, you know, we all know that, um, that uh, lifestyle choices, when we talk about the health bucket, part of what we talk about is the lifestyle choices you make. And you know, one of the things that we do have control over is, is um, weight. Right, we can make some choices, and as you age, it becomes more challenging yeah. to lose the weight. Yeah, and so there's been some new studies about this, about this age demographic. Yep. As you're getting older, what do you do? We're going to fi- figure that out. But you and I are not the right people <laughs> to talk about this. No, we, we're going to listen intently to this. We've got <laughs> Dr. Kristen Beavers, who's a researcher at Wake Forest University, joining us. Dr. Beavers, thanks for spending a bit of time with us today. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's let's talk a little bit about weight loss here and. Um, maybe explain why it's harder for me at 51 than it is for Faisal at whatever age he is significantly younger A lot younger. younger than me. Yeah. A lot younger. Why does it get harder? <laughs> huh. um, well, uh, that, that is a loaded question for sure. <laughs> I would say to begin with, um, d- in general, while we think about weight as being bad, it's really fat that we're concerned about. And what happens as you age, I mean, this happens to everyone, is just that muscle and bone mass start to decline around your 30s, something like that, uh, where fat mass tends to creep upward uh, until you're maybe in your mid-70s. And so I think some of the reason it's difficult is because you have this shifting in compartments that really contributes to health risk um, and makes it harder for you to keep your metabolism up if your muscle mass is going down, things like that. So that's why my, my chest decided it needed to move to my stomach. I don't know what happened there. Okay, so <laughs> that was too much information. I know. Let's let's so let's talk a little bit about sort of safe weight loss. Um, it's, so we know there's differences, obviously, between uh, you know older people and younger people. But uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, about sort of safe weight loss for seniors because you've hit on something I think that's really important. Is uh, it's not about weight; it's about the composition, right? So mm-hmm. you, it's totally fine if you're gaining weight, but you're putting on muscle mass to support your structure and everything. So maybe just give us a little bit of insight there. Uh, about what seniors should be thinking about and what safe weight weight loss actually means. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that um, what folks can generally ag- agree on is if you can do it, you'd maximize fat loss while minimizing muscle and bone loss. Right. And so then obviously the question is, well, exactly, you know, how might you do that? Um, we know that there are lifestyle-based um, countermeasures to weight loss associated muscle and bone loss that older adults can partake in like resistance exercise um, is helpful to maintain muscle if you can make it more high impact training that's even better for your bone Um, what's that mean so let's, let's just define high impact for a moment for our listeners yeah, so basically, so your bone kind of responds to the stresses that it's placed on it. And so in particular, high-impact stresses. So if you do something like um, 
jumping, let's mm-hmm. even say, uh, which may you know may or may not be. And this honestly is the difficulty in in the research I do because there's the the ideal, and then there's the you know what people can do safely and are willing to do. But you right. know, if you could um, maybe do like um, uh, leg drops. Um, or or um, some people even walk with a weighted vest. Sounds right. kind of crazy. Um, but basically just to try to load your bones in a way that, that you are uh, impacting them and, and help, helping them to maintain their structure. Kristen, I've been carrying Dave in this business for the past 10 years, so I know what it's like to have a lot of weight on your on your, on your back and so forth, so I understand that. Wow. Uh, but but no, let's, let's talk about this, this research that you guys did. There was a study aimed to, to quantify the risk of doing nothing. Uh, you did yeah. some, there was a group, and then they kind of walk us through that, yeah. what you guys yeah. did, and, and what were some of the results from it. Yeah, and let me actually, as I segue into that, let me, let me mention, um, because I think this is appropriate for the exercise bit of it. You know, we know that exercise is a pretty effective um, way to, to maintain muscle and bone. The fact of the matter is that it's hard for people to do it. I mean, and so so the um, study that we conducted that um, I'll tell you about here in a second was specifically designed to really be targeting dietary changes. Right. Because making two changes making it is hard. And so we, we wanted to design a program that really just focused on on the, the diet side of things to see if that was effective. We know exercise is effective. It's just that people have trouble doing it. So anyway, the the study that we um, completed and recently um, uh, was picked up by a couple of news outlets um, was a study that um, looked at a higher protein, uh, nutritionally complete weight loss program. And by nutritionally complete, um, for the uh, it really means um, adequate in micronutrients, um, making sure we have enough calcium and vitamin D, which are really important for muscle and bone health, Um, and and comparing that diet plan to um, a weight stability group. And as you mentioned, the the reason for that contrast is because a lot of times what happens is is you have a geriatrician, a a doctor that's working with an older adult, and um, they are talking about weight loss, and there's a pause because there's sort of this, you know, theoretical risk that you have this person that, you know, may, let's say is obese, wants to lose weight, but if they do lose weight, they might lose muscle and bone, and that could exacerbate disability and fracture risk. And so, anyway, I think that a lot of times in the clinic, people don't know what to do, and so they don't do anything. <laughs> they just say, well, yeah, let's right. revisit this in six months. Right. And so so this study was really designed to sort of, com- okay, let's do something, and let's compare it to the, maintain the status quo and see what happens across a variety of health indicators. And so... Um, we looked at weight change, um, we looked at body composition change, we looked at mobility, that's a really uh, important outcome for older adults. I mean, if you can't walk, you probably aren't going to be able to live independently. Right. Um, we looked at bone, and um, we looked at some biomarkers that predict um, mortality, believe it or not, and how weight loss may affect those. Okay. Um, so and I what could, did you, I could what, do what, what, in turn, or you ask me, what, what, what do you want to know? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I keep going on that, because I want to know, um, you've studied this stuff, and so we know that there are some realities, right? And this is, this is the thing, I don't want this just to be another segment about, oh, we all know we should lose weight or, you know, lose fat, I guess mm-hmm. more precisely. What, what should people be doing? What changes can they make uh, in their lives uh, to get started on that path, right? Like you said, we can't change everything mm-hmm. all at once. Where do we start? Mm-hmm. So, so this study, and what I could tell you from the research we did, was looking at a diet approach period and just right. to see if that was effective. So this uh, diet plan that we had folks follow, and there were um, about nine, a little less than 100 individuals enrolled in this study for a six-month period. Half of them were randomized to our weight loss program. Half of them were the weight stability arm. And those in the weight loss arm were following this higher protein, so trying to get about a gram of protein 
per body weight per day. That's kind of dietitian speak for, for a higher protein, mm-hmm. um, which is challenging to do when you're losing weight. I mean, it really is. It, it does require some kind of intentional planning on, on your part. Not impossible, but just I think requires a little bit of, of yep. planning. Um, and, and as I said, also making sure that, that calcium and vitamin D was adequate during the weight loss. So, so I guess like from a, you know, practical standpoint, that's what we did. So we made sure they were getting enough protein, probably, you know, above what the recommended dietary allowance is, but I think probably more appropriate for what an older adult needs to maintain muscle and gotcha. bone okay. um, uh, and, and vitamin D and, and calcium. And when we did this, I mean, what we saw is that these people lost, I mean, quite a bit of weight. They lost about 8% of their weight over the six-month period, um, and the majority of it was from fat. So they lost about 87% of what they lost came from fat, which um, I just take in comparison to other studies in the literature, this is great. I mean, normally you expect at least a quarter of what you lose to be from muscle and bone. And so this was, you know, a lot less. I mean, you're going to lose some. I mean, I yeah. think, you know, that's just, that's the reality of it. But by and large, these folks were able to preserve their muscle and their bone. Uh, and then from the, you know, from a kind of a, a clinical outcome standpoint, their mobility stayed the same. Their bone mass stayed the same. Bone quality even improved a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so I think that this, um, you know, you know, from a kind of holistic standpoint was a plan that really tried, you know, did what we hoped it would do. You know, we got people to lose fat, they maintained their muscle and bone, and then a lot of their clinical indicators that, you know, a geriatrician would be concerned about um, stayed the same or even got a little better. So so in a, in a nutshell, if the uh, average listener right now is trying to figure out what the heck they should do, are we saying increase it to about one gram of protein per kilogram of body weight, have some vitamin D, have some calcium, and you're better yeah. off? Like, is that is that the outcome? That, yeah, I mean, and, and honestly, maybe even just a little simpler than that. I think that, you know, in terms of, like, what you might eat, I think this is just really thinking about, you know, consuming, like, lean proteins um, kind of at your meals, like, throughout the day, things like um, you know, a, a chicken breast or a lean ground beef or fish flare or something like that, and then you know, non-starchy vegetables, so, you know, um, greens, if, if you like them, if you, you know, um, and, um, um, well, I guess leafy greens, yeah. green beans, broccoli, things of that nature, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what age should they be focusing on this? Like, is it at 50 and above, or is it 65, or what? What's the age? Well, this study, so our, I mean, our study was looking at folks who are 65 and older. I mean, and I do think like the risks for things of like sarcopenia and, and fractured, I mean, obviously that goes up as you get older, certainly as you get into your seventh and eighth decade of life. But I, I mean, honestly, some, I think sometimes I joke that I'm at the wrong end of the spectrum. You know, I think this stuff really should start pretty early on. Um, so I don't think it, you know, I think you can think about it in middle age and hopefully, you know, give yourself some reserve going into to older adulthood. Thanks for your input. Uh, we appreciate it, Dr. Beavers. Absolutely. Thank we've you. Joined, we've been joined by Dr. Kristen Beavers, who's a researcher at Wake Forest University, and uh, reminding us again about uh, some healthy choices that we can make in our health bucket, right, to improve the quality of certainly of our retirement. We're going to talk about that at our upcoming seminar. That'll be on Tuesday, May 14th, 7 p.m. at the Four Points Sheraton Hotel in the West Calgary. You need to reserve your seats, though. Give us a call, 966-8400, or go online to register at morethanmoneyradio.com. Interested in alternative investing? We'll stick around after the break. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Faisal, we often talk about um, alternative asset classes. Yes. Right? So things that, that don't fit into the traditional asset allocation or asset definition of cash, stocks, or bonds, right? All terms. And lots of things that can fit in that category. You can have things like gold and commodities, and there's a whole bunch of stuff. But there's an asset class that, that we're interested in and uh, we, we follow along, which is called a, 
a market neutral long short strategy. Correct. Yeah. And so when we talk about our five pillar investment strategy approach, um, you know, one of the pillars is the alternative trading concept. And, yep. and when you're looking at a alternative way to trade in the market, so it's not uh, correlated to the stock market or has low correlation, those types of things, you don't have the volatility. That's why we brought it in. And we weren't, we, we didn't think of this ourselves. We, we shamelessly adopted it from smart people like the Yale Foundation, yeah. uh, and as well as other pension plans who've been doing it. So we wanted to bring the uh, the brains uh, behind the operation onto our show to kind of explain what that is, and then you know what what can we expect out of out of that kind of an asset class? Yeah, and just educate about what alternatives and alternative trading strategies are. We've got Tim Elliott joining us. Tim's the president of CCNL Funds. Tim, thanks for taking some time with us today. Sure, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. So let's just maybe talk a little bit about, I'm, I'm not sure I did justice to the definition of an alternative asset class. If you want to expand on that, feel free. But I, I want to uh, get your thoughts to, to a layperson what this whole idea of, of a market-neutral strategy is. What, what is this alternative strategy, and why would somebody be interested in it? Sure, absolutely. So as you had said, Dave, alternative investments are, are simply investments that are not traditional investments, which would be your stocks and your bonds. And because these alternative investments behave differently than stocks and bonds, when you combine them into your portfolio, you end up with a similar return objective, but with a much smoother ride or or less volatility. With a market neutral strategy, as opposed to just buying the stocks in the market that we think will outperform and ignoring the stocks we think are going to underperform, we actually do a combination of buying the stocks we think will outperform and short selling the stocks that we think will underperform. And so we end up neutralizing the market. We own as many stocks long as we do short. And really the return from that strategy comes from the difference or spread in returns between our our long positions and our, our short positions. Now, so walk, walk us through a little bit about uh, the theory behind that. Um, and, you, you know, you made the comment, what will be music to people's ears right now, because we've had a lot of volatility at the last part of last year, smoothing out that ride. How do you accomplish, how do you accomplish doing that? Sure thing. Well, let's take our global market neutral strategy, for example. So we have a long-term expected return on that strategy of about 8%, which is about the long-term expected return from the stock market. However, the the risk or volatility of our strategy is about half of that of the stock market. And a good year in the stock market doesn't necessarily make for a good year in our strategy and vice versa. 2008, for instance, was a terrible year for global stock markets, but was quite a good year for our global market neutral strategy. And so it's, as we all know, difficult or impossible to predict when each of these strategies are going to outperform. And so what institutional investors do is they combine stock portfolios, bond portfolios, and market neutral portfolios together. And therefore, you cut out the highest highs, but also the lowest lows, and you end up achieving or giving yourself a chance to achieve your long-term objectives but without the same kind of volatility along the way. Now, if, if you know, risk is sort of, and volatility is front of mind for a lot of people, um, we talk about this, you know, the alternatives in this particular strategy having no correlation, Faisal said, to, uh, you know, to say the equity markets, the stock markets, even though the underlying investments are, are long and short 
stocks. Maybe, again, in layman's terms, the best you can, Tim, explain when, we, when an institutional investor adds a piece of this kind of a strategy to a portfolio, what does it do in terms of, uh, what does a no, non-correlation mean and what is that, what's the experience an investor will have? Sure, absolutely. So the the in the investor's portfolio on a given day or a week or year, they're going to have certain strategies and, and securities that are doing better and and those that are doing worse. And unfortunately, human emotion tends to work at odds with sound investing. So when something is working really, really well, we want to own more of it. And when something's w- not working, we want to own less of it. But um, oftentimes, that is, in fact, the, the wrong thing to be doing. And so because we tend to react poorly to these periods of maximum optimism or maximum pessimism, there's a real benefit if you can cut out those, those peaks and troughs from your, uh, from your returns experience. And so when you incorporate something like a market neutral strategy that has performed well over time, but performs uh, well at different periods than stock and bond markets into your stock and bond portfolios, you end up with simply a smoother path. One thing about investing in alternatives is it, it, like you mentioned, it does reduce volatility of the overall portfolio. But when you look at that investment, and we'll just talk about market neutral in general, um, what's the time or patience that a person needs to have with a with a strategy like this? Like, how long of an investment time period should you have with this kind of investment? Because there are times, like you've mentioned, and and in recent uh, in recent markets, uh, generally speaking, these market neutral or long short strategies have not done as well as the markets have. The stock market in Canada or U.S. primarily the U.S. is what I'm referring to. But um, when you when you look at someone who wants to invest in this type of a, a strategy, how long should they be? keeping it as part of their portfolio does actually see the results that you're mentioning. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, because we are targeting a return above the risk-free rate, you know, which might be 2% today and we're targeting 8, so clearly we have to take on risk to try and target a better return than simply holding cash. And so anytime you're taking on risk that you're going to expose yourself to to the potential to you know, go down as well as, as going up. And, and certainly we saw that uh, in, in the stock market, especially in Q4 of, of last year with, with markets uh, generally peak to trough down uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20% during that period. We do not expect the same kind of uh, dramatic peaks and troughs in a market neutral strategy, but uh, we do not expect it to deliver 8% every single year. Uh, that, is, that is not something uh, that you can do when, you, when you're taking on risk. And so uh, to your question, Faisal, about time horizon, we would view uh, five years or, or uh, an average time horizon for an equity investor as a reasonable time frame to experience the benefits of this strategy. Important to keep in mind, though, uh, because we are not taking any exposure to the direction of stock markets, if the U.S. stock market is up 30% and our market neutral strategy is up 8%, then that is uh, we've achieved our, our objective. If the U.S. stock market is down 30%, we are still targeting that same positive 8% uh, return. So, again, uh, very unrelated to the direction of the stock market and also with significant less less risk or volatility. And I think that's what we need to have a bit more of an 
understanding when investing in these types of alternative investments is that it's not going to match what the market does. And so it is targeted for a return. And we're in, in, in the example you've used is 8%. That's an absolute return over a, over a market cycle. That's important for people to know. Because could you imagine, Dave, that if the markets were down negative, let's say 10% over a five-year period, which is possible. Mm-hmm. It's happened in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the market neutral strategy is positive, right. which is great. But if it's negative five, it's still a failure in their eyes. Right. Right. And that's, I think people have to understand that because when, when it comes to portfolios, people benchmark or compare themselves to some sort of market out there versus what they really need. And, and I like the way that um, you know these guys CCNL do it for this portfolio, or uh, how we use them in our portfolios for that absolute return over a certain period of time, and that's right. that's what we're targeting. So, so Tim, when 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 you're meeting with institutional investors, now we're talking about the smart guys with big money. What are the, some of the things that they're asking you today that maybe they're not they weren't asking five years ago? Sure, absolutely. So, so the good news with our with our institutional investors and and um, some of the uh, investment advisory teams that we work with that that behave like institutions and incorporate these strategies is not a whole lot has changed. What is important to them to understand is do we have the same probability of being successful in the next five years as we were in the last five years? Unfortunately, we all know we can't buy past performance, and so when you're investing with a given strategy or a given investment manager, what you're really trying to uh, give yourself is the highest probability of future success. So has anyone on our team left? Is there anything that we're doing differently that uh, will make it more difficult to have the same kind of success as we've had in the past? As you uh, both well know, uh, we're a very large privately owned organization, and one of the benefits is uh, that we tend to have very, very low turnover in our personnel. People, people don't leave. And so because our institutional clients have confidence that we have the same team employing the same process that has delivered success over a long period of time, that uh, they can take comfort in the fact that we have the same probability of future success as we had 5 or 10 or 15 years ago. Tim, I want to thank you for your time. We can't do the, this topic justice in 10 minutes, but I think you've done a really good job at a very high level giving people an understanding of what an alternative asset class is and how these market-neutral strategies fit within a portfolio. Thanks for your time. Anytime, guys. Very much appreciated. Thank you. been joined by Tim Elliott, President of CCNL Funds, and we're going to talk about this uh, in the context of the bigger picture, right? How to bulletproof your retirement, how to make sure that uh, you get the highest probability, as Tim said, the highest probability of success of maintaining that lifestyle that you've envisioned. Yeah, and how do we use our five-pillar investment strategy approach to reach those goals? We'll discuss that on Tuesday, May 14th, 7 p.m. at the Four Points Sheraton Hotel in West Calgary. You need to reserve your seats. Give us a call, 966-8400. That's 966-8400. Or go online to register at morethemoneyradio.com. Are you interested or curious about what the real cost of care could be for you or for a loved one? Tune in on the next segment. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're listening to 770 CHQR and More Than Money. And guess who just stepped into the studio here? Andrew Masson, one of our other partners for the Popwitch Carmelli Advisory Group. And Andrew, one of the biggest concerns people have as they go through retirement is the uh, the cost of health care in the future. Yes. It's aging, um, their own health, and then 
to pay for that. And one of the biggest questions that I get, because I get to work on the health bucket with a lot of our clients as, as the lead on it, um, is how much is it going to cost? Yeah, and you've lived a lot of that through me to some degree. And Dave. And Dave. Uh, because I had a, a mom who's, who's recently passed, but uh, was in a long-term care facility, um, and and that cost is is surprisingly high, um, in my mind. Um, and of course, every little bit of information you could possibly get in this subject is crucial. So part of the shock that people get, Andrew, and and, and you've lived it, so you can yeah. jump in here on this one. Part of the shock that people get is they're surprised. A, that there is a payment to make because healthcare, in theory, has been a non-payment out-of-pocket when you use it for most of the situations. Now, we're not talking dental, chiropractic, no. physiotherapy. Those are th- those people understand, but to actually have someone care for you, the co- it, it, people don't have that, their head wrapped around that you got to pay out-of-pocket. Well, and what does long-term care really look like, too? And what I mean by that is, is, is it uh, home care? Is it part-time? Is it full-time? Is it in a uh, assisted living facility? Is it in a long-term care facility? There's so many different ways of looking at this. And there's so many questions that we have. And, of course, we don't have all of the answers, so we have to get uh, some of the experts out there. So we're joined with Karen Henderson. She's founder and chief executive of Long-Term Care Planning Network. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Okay, so we're just going to go right into the first question that all of our clients have is, what does long-term care really cost? Well, uh, each province is different in this country, but when it comes to Alberta, um, there are a range of costs depending on how you define long-term care. Long-term care can mean living at home. Long-term care can mean uh, living in a retirement or assisted living facility. And long-term care can also mean living in a supportive living or a long-term care facility. So I'm assuming that you mean the latter. If you have information on all of them, let's start let's start knocking <laughs> it down. That'd be great. Yeah. Okay. Um, if you want to stay at home, which most people do uh, until the end of their life, you will need, in all probability, home care. Uh, and the amount of home care you need will depend on the family support that you have. Uh, given that you do have family support and you need to pay for extra, uh, in Alberta, the Calgary mean right about now is $28 an hour for someone to come in and, and uh, help with what we call the activities of daily living, which means uh, help with meal prep, home house cleaning, and personal care. And uh, that can go up to $10,000 a month for 24-7 care. So home care can be excruciatingly expensive. If we move along the continuum to retirement home care, people move into retirement homes because they're they're tired of maintaining their own home and they're they're pretty healthy. They may may need some help with perhaps medication management. And the average uh, here is about three to four thousand dollars a month for accommodation and meals and activities. And these facilities are privately owned rental accommodation. So the province has nothing to do with rates in uh, retirement or assisted living. Finally, along the continuum, we have long-term care, um, which also may mean um, supportive care. And this is the type of accommodation that people need when they need 24-hour care or supervision because of chronic health conditions, frailty, or because they suffer from a dementia such as Alzheimer's. Right now, effective July 1st in 2018, um, 
in Alberta, the average monthly standard uh, room rate that is would be for uh, more than three or three people or more in a room is sixteen hundred a month. For a semi-private room, is seventeen hundred a month, and for a private room, it's just over two thousand dollars a month. So, if you look at all all three along the continuum, if you are stretched for funds, then living in a long-term care facility could be your least expensive option. However, you need to qualify to get into long-term care. You just can't decide that you want to move into a long-term care facility. You have to be assessed by the province. And and the the, the timeline in which you could get into one of those facilities um, with that's provincially run um, is significant in length, if I'm correct. Well, um, actually, I've tried to find that out. Um, okay. Right here in Toronto, or sorry, in Ontario, there's 26,000 people waiting for a bed in long-term care. Yep. I couldn't find I couldn't find the number in Alberta, but I know I know there is a um, a wait list for sure. There's a wait list in every province for for the facilities that people think are the best. Yeah, because in Ontario, I, I you know where I was uh, was dealing with that right now. Um, it was you know it could be anywhere from two weeks to two years, depending on the facility yeah. you chose. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, I, I would say it's similar to, to that here in Alberta. Um, but when it comes to, um, let's say, going to the, what is, are there specific costs that, um, that nobody thinks about that really have to be considered um, in looking at one of these um, three options? Uh, there's always costs that surprise you. Um, uh, if you don't plan uh, for long-term care, and you don't put money aside, it becomes it can become quite costly. One of the things that people don't realize that is if they wait too long to apply for a bed in long-term care, uh, they have to pay out-of-pocket for care at home during this wait time, which, as you have said, can be two weeks or two years. That's unexpected. Other costs are, of course, equipment costs. Wheelchairs can be four or $5,000. Walkers up to four hundred. Uh, other assistive devices in the home have to be paid for. A, a hospital bed can be four thousand dollars. A scooter, twenty four hundred. You know the list goes on. Um, and when when you get into a facility, uh, and I'm going to really talk about long term care here, the extra costs are things like medications that aren't covered by um, the Alberta government. Things like incontinence products that a resident may need, services in the facility such as as um, foot care or nail care, or someone wants to get their hair done, and also if you decide that you want more care for a parent in in a long term care facility, then you pay for that yourself uh, on an hourly rate. So that would be you know around twenty eight dollars an hour. And then we're also going to share this with all of our clients and all of our our listeners that that want to come to our radio sh- our, our radio website um, after. Um, they need some uh, guidance, and I think how do you protect yourself from these costs, or what should someone be doing from now to prepare uh, that there may be these types of costs in the future coming out of their pocket? Well, the first thing they need to do is understand how the provincial health care system works where they live, and in this case, it's Alberta. And so you need to understand what we call the continuum of care, which starts from care in the home and works all the way through to end-of-life or palliative care. And every one of those um, has costs attached to it. 
and also has um, uh, a telephone number to call, which I will uh, supply you uh, with for your readers. So that's the first thing. Understand the the healthcare system where you live. Um, Secondly, uh, look at your own family history with respect to health. What diseases run in your family? What might you suffer from? Uh, Is it arthritis? Is it high blood pressure? Is it Alzheimer's? Is it ALS? So you can become familiar with uh, the disease progression and the kinds of costs that are involved in managing this disease. And the last thing is to understand that the government doesn't pay for everything. And Canadians across this country, unfortunately, believe that, you know, when push comes to shove, um, when all is said and done, that the government will be there to pay. And the government is only there to pay for partial care at any level, whether it's uh, home care or long-term care. The rest comes uh, from the taxes that we pay or from what we pay out of pocket. So what I tell my clients is to have a family conversation, sit down with your family and look objectively at your situation. Let's say you're 65 or 70 and you sit down with your family and say, okay, here's, here's the health challenges that I face. Here's where I live. Here's where I want to live as I age. Um, here are the family members who are able and willing to help me. And here um, is my professional team, my family doctor, my specialist for this and my specialist for that. All of this information needs to be compiled in one place. And then finally, a funding mechanism has to be created. So whether you buy long-term care insurance or whether you set up a health spending account or you purchase an annuity, there has to be some kind of funding mechanism for long-term care. No um, financial or retirement plan is complete without a funding mechanism for long-term care. Amen. Amen to that. That's the one thing, Andrew, we've been pushing and talking to people about and pounding the table on every time we talk about a retirement plan. (laughs) Yeah. That you cannot have a retirement plan without a health plan. You can't. No, no, you can't. Yeah, in so a perfect, in a perfect world, we never have to do that. But let's let's be realistic. Yeah. Canadians are living. <laughs> Canadians are living longer. They're enjoying their lifestyles longer. But that also has um, a medical uh, aspect to it that doesn't go away. In fact, it just gets harder. That's right. That's right. Uh, great, great piece, Karen. Thank you so much for joining us today. We've been joined by Karen Henderson, founder and chief executive of the Long Term Care Planning Network. Now, we have our seminar on Tuesday, May fourteenth. 7 p.m. at the Four Points Sheraton Hotel in West Calgary. You need to reserve your seats, 966-8400. That's 966-8400, or you can register online at morethemoneyradio.com. We're going to be talking about why people lose money in their portfolio on 770-CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770-CHQR and More Than Money. Um, Good show. It was a good show. Yeah. Uh, You know, I want to think, I've had some interesting conversations since the beginning of this year. Um, and it stems from what happened last year. And we, we've talked a little bit about this already this year about, you know, strategy and you've got to think a little bit about uh, how much volatility you can take and, you know, all those different things. But here's the question I've been getting. Okay. And it hasn't always come this way, Faisal, but this is what people are talking about. We clearly face uncertainty and we always do. But right now the headlines, you know, we've got the Trump thing going on with uh, China. You've got the Brexit thing going. There's some big headlines that scares people. And I, I, 
I'm having a difficult time with the with the messaging around how you put together a proper strategy because people seem to think you've got to have a crystal ball and you're all in or all out on something, right? That doesn't make sense. We, you remember we did that show, and I actually had some really good feedback this week on the show that we did when we talked about trying to be uh, uh, market trend, timing. Market timing. Okay. I had some great feedback. Okay. Okay. And really positive. Help people understand. Good. That. I'm glad they saw some value. Yeah. Perfect. So we we talk about this idea of you need to stay invested through a full term. You got to find the strategy that is, gives you enough comfort, uh, and uh, you know there's enough. Uh, the volatility isn't so high that you make bad emotional decisions. Okay. Correct. Panic sales. Okay. So this. How do you, when you face uncertainty in an economic environment, how do you then put together an investment portfolio? What is the thesis, right? It was kind of boiling right down to this. What's the, how do I do that, right? Because, geez, if I could wake up tomorrow and we could have a full-blown trade war on, which, you know, markets will plummet. So, so I'm smiling only because we always say because of an economic situation or concern, how do you handle the portfolio? Give me a point in history where there never has been an economic concern. No, no, that's my point. Right? Yeah. So I don't believe it's the economic issue that really triggers individuals. I believe it's the reaction that they're facing within themselves that causes them to react. No, so what, what, I, what I mean by that, Dave, is as we age, and, and, and I'm going to pick on you because we talked about this before we went on the air, it is hard to adjust to change. Mm-hmm. And when the markets are moving even faster now than when you first started investing or when I first started investing or when most of these listeners have started uh, uh, first uh, uh, investing, it's a change. And it, it, it's, it's a scary change because it's, it's so quick. So the reaction is, well, what if we miss it or what if something goes wrong or what, the what if keeps on coming out? And that makes people say, we better know that we have to do something before it happens versus have a strategy giving multiple outcomes. Yes, that, that's exactly it, right? It's not an all-in or all-out. There are different pieces of the portfolio given certain assumptions, right? So here, here was my issue. You and I talk about this stuff at a very high level, right? Yeah. And the questions conversation I've been having over an extended period of time here is, I don't think people understand what we talk about when we talk about asset allocation, probabilities, and so on and so forth. So I just wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about okay, that, right? let's do it. Because we, we had a conference call, as an example, mm-hmm. uh, recently, and we said that we increased the probability of global recession this year from last year by a percentage, okay? Yep. That was a, a, a change in what we felt, um, uh, you know, we, we needed to adjust portfolios to. We took that probability and we made an adjustment to the portfolio. We sold into the rally that we've seen in equities, trimmed some of the equities and added to bonds. Yep. Okay. And directionally what we were saying is there are risks out there, we recognize it. If this happens, you know, what's the chance of this happening? Put a probability to it, right? Yep. A percentage. Yep. And if we're wrong, we can be wrong in two ways. It can be worse than what we expect. What's the probability of that? Yes. Or it can be better than we expect. What's the probability of that? So this, when we talk about a base case, that's our what we think the high probability outcome is. Correct. Right? And then we build a portfolio for that. Then we have a worst case. Yep. Okay? And we know what that looks, the playbook looks like for that. And then we have a best case, and we know what the playbook looks for that. But it's based on our, our overall call, right? What is the economic environment? What asset classes are priced uh, more favorably in this economic environment? And what are the probabilities of problems or successes? You, you've nailed it when you said we have an economic forecast. Right. We have best case, worst case, base case scenarios. And people still go into market timing. Yeah. 
people still go into, well, if the market is going down, then you should get out. Right. You should sell everything. Right. So I, I look at that and, and, and I think in the other parts of this world, when would we ever react that way? Right. When House the, prices are falling in Calgary right now. Do you sell all of your real estate? Ask business owners in Alberta. Should right. you get rid of your business? Right. Because that's what we're owning. When we own stocks, as an example, right. we're buying businesses. Right. And just because there's a minute-by-minute change in the value of that, and you can see it, if you own a private business, would you sell the minute you realize that your earnings are down 10%? Would you just get out? Right. Or the, the, the best one's the house, right? Most people don't own businesses, but many people own homes, right? And so we often have conversations with people about, I'm pessimistic about oil and gas in this province, yep, and yep. Da, 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 da. Okay? but they do not. They say they want to sell all the stock globally, right, even though it's a fact here. But they would never consider selling their house. Yeah, Pipelines are not happening in Alberta, so sell my stocks, but keep my home. Right. <laughs> sell my U.S. equity, Yeah. Right, which has nothing to do with pipelines in Alberta, but keep my home, which is impacted in Alberta. In Alberta. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense. And, and this was what I, what I was trying to uh, – the conversations I've been having and what I wanted to spend this last segment on to sort of tie it together is, is help people. I mean, we've been on this notion of, of education, right? And um, we can't just – the industry, our industry often says, oh, just hang in there. It's going to be okay. That helps nobody. Yeah, that, that's, that's, I think you're petting them or something. Right. It helps nobody, right? Okay. We so, got it. We so got to have a can, strategy. Can I give the solution? Sure. Can I give the answer to this biggest problem okay. that people have when it comes to making money in this market? Right. Two things. First of all, when you are dealing with an advisor, yep. is the advisor selling you a product right. or providing you with a strategy? Right. When you sell a product, and we had one person who went to three different advisors, met with Andrew this week, mm -hmm. and she said, everybody was telling me to buy a product. Mm -hmm. We were the first team to talk about strategy in the bigger picture. Right. Okay? I look at it this way. Is if all you have is a hammer in your, in your, tool, in your tool kit, then everything is a nail. Right. So you're just going to sell your product for every scenario. Right. And then your response is, hang in there long-term right. until my, my product comes works out, right. <laughs> hang in there. Right. The, the way to actually make money in this market and longer term, because that's what the real game is, yeah. is you need to take a step back from the day-to-day -day headline news and get into the fundamentals of what the heck's going on in this world. Right. And fundamentals, <laughs> which means... What are the key economic drivers that makes the world go around? Mm -hmm. Are we seeing people spend more money? Businesses spend more money? Is manufacturing growing? Are we actually moving goods around? Right. And what are what are the valuations? And you know how much do you have to pay? How for much a are you paying earnings? for companies? Exactly. Are they are they valuable? Or are they are they are they fairly inexpensive versus history? Yeah. Gives you a bit of a benchmark. Or their peers? Are you prepared yeah. to pay more for some kind of growth given the current economic climate right. and the foreseeable future? Right. In the event economics start to turn, what are the indicators that you need to look at that will say change your viewpoint on your portfolio? portfolio, when you have that kind of a conversation, you're not talking about stocks. You're not talking about this company versus that company. Yeah. You're talking macroeconomics going into the areas around the world that's going to do well, mm -hmm. and then you're going to put your money there. Right. And there's there kind of a number of changes. I'm going to sum this up pretty quick because we're running out of time. But there's a number of, of things you do in a portfolio. There's the day-to-day -day trading that you do when you just see opportunity in one security versus another security. Okay, That kind of happens all the time. Uh, within this, you have an economic call. Yep. Okay, 
Um, if the economic environment changes, if the fundamental data says there's a change, then you change your assumptions, and that leads to a fundamental change in the portfolio's strategy, right? Yep. And then there's just asset class price swings. So when securities stocks uh, fall, but you don't believe there's a fundamental change, it's trading activity, then we call it a rebalance, right? You want to take advantage of those, uh, of those things that go on sale temporarily and buy them, right? But here's the thing. Um, I go back to the, 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 the fear for people is that it's these big all-in bets. There's not. They could be incremental changes, 5% here, 5% there, a rebalance, add 1% to this, take 1% from that. You're batting singles constantly by being active I don't rather think, than home runs. I don't think people understand when you're dealing, for example, us in a five-pillar investment strategy approach. Right. Why five pillars? How do you move between the two right. and so forth? So I think I want to challenge us, okay. you and I, yep. that we need to explain how proper portfolio management is done. Right. How do you move pillar to pillar? And let's do this at our next session. On Tuesday, May 14th, 7 p.m. at the Four Points Sheraton Hotel in West Calgary. You need to reserve your seats. Give us a call, 966-8400. That's 966-8400. Or go online to register at morethanmoneyradio.com. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund, an investment industry regulatory organization of Canada. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund, an investment industry regulatory organization of Canada.